The all-new Toyota RAV4 asks, what if? What if your ride was refined and rugged at the same time? Introducing the all-new RAV4 Hybrid. 208 combined horsepower and standard all-wheel drive make it the most powerful RAV4. Plus, with its head-turning style and breakaway speed, it's bound to change the way you think of a hybrid. The all-new RAV4 Hybrid. Toyota. Let's go places. Horsepower. Ratings achieved using the required premium Atlanta gasoline with an octane rating of 91 or higher. Premium fuel is not used. Performance will decrease. Last week, we heard an episode of Join the Party, the wacky and inclusive actual play podcast. It's like audio fiction powered by a role-playing game. This week, I'm talking to two of the people that make that show, Eric Silver and Amanda McLaughlin. It's all right here on Radio Drama Revival. Hey folks, welcome to Radio Drama Revival, the podcast that showcases the diversity and vitality of modern audio fiction. I'm your host, David Reinstrom. Last week, we played an episode of Join the Party, a collaborative storytelling podcast that blends dramatic performance and gameplay into a kind of hybrid between a D&D actual play podcast and an audio drama. Well, I spoke to Amanda and Eric, two of the people behind that podcast, for an interview. Eric is the DM, the dungeon master, the person that tells the story, and Amanda is a player character named Inara Harthorn, who's one of the protagonists of the show. We talked about how to make this hobby accessible, fantasy racism, finding meaning in collaborative fiction, and mashing up Dungeons and Dragons with the TV show Chopped. You don't need to have heard the previous episode to make sense of this interview, but it couldn't hurt nonetheless. All right, here we go. Amanda and Eric, welcome to Radio Drama Revival. We made it. You done did it. We did. (laughs) So I wanted to ask you both... When did you first realize the dramatic potential of Dungeons and Dragons? Around the time that I was getting into just podcasts, like past NPR, past public radio podcasts, I came upon the Adventure Zone. Uh, I was starting to get into Dungeons and Dragons. I really wanted to play. And I was just kind of like reaching out for D&D, I guess, content. And uh, someone steered me towards... The Adventure Zone. And for everyone, anyone who doesn't know, first of all, stop listening to this podcast. Hey. Go download The Adventure Zone. Come back and then keep listening to this. No, that's fair. 56 but, hours later, yeah. we'll see you soon. <laughs> but it's the McElroys, uh, Justin, Travis, and Griffin um, from My Brother and Brother and Me. And their dad, Clint, are playing Dungeons and Dragons together. And it is just so interesting and fun and funny. It starts out being really jokey. And then, like, the story really starts to develop. And I'm just like, wow, I guess every single D&D podcast is like the Adventure Zone. Uh, uh, I need to listen to more D&D podcasts. Yeah, there were so many actual play podcasts prior to the Adventure Zone. But what what made Adventure Zone different for you? So I'm more of a newbie to gaming. Um, I didn't play video games growing up. My brother, who is just like a year and change younger than me, and we grew up very close, uh, was super into D&D. But it was like the thing that he did with his friends on Friday nights that I was not invited to, like in capital letters. Um, So I never it never occurred to me even to learn more about it as an adult. But the reason that I got into the Adventure Zone, despite like if I had known it was about D&D when I started it, I never would have listened to it. I just knew that it was a thing that, you know, Eric talked really highly about and other friends of mine as well. 
is that it's a story first and like a game podcast second. Like they really are telling a story and the way that that story is created and ruled are, you know, by these game mechanics. Like I didn't even know how complicated and nerdy and sort of, you know, hostile to outsiders D&D can get because my entree to it was the adventure zone, which is like, you know, aggressively open toward newcomers. Like it's queer. It has lots of different settings, not just sort of like elven high fantasy type stuff. Mm -hmm. So for me, that's what makes it different. This is also like way before I knew anything about like how audio is made. So it's just like, oh man, these guys have like great energy together and they're just kind of like making stuff together. But then like, as I found other podcasts, I'm just like, wow, this is nothing like the adventure zone. It's lacking so much like substance i listen to a bunch of actual play podcasts but i would say that now the ones that i listen to are all very similar to the adventure zone or like join the party where it's it's not quite the experience of list just being a fly on the wall at your friend's D campaign but that they are these constructed edited things that are streamlined for a podcast audience i gotta say first of all a lot of D&D podcasts are not like that. The first recorded real play podcast is called Acquisitions Incorporated. It's made by these guys who make Penny Arcade, like very large in the gaming community. They're just like, hey, what if I put a microphone in our D&D games and recorded it and then put it on iTunes? Has anyone, what's <laughs> iTunes? It's an RSS feed. I've heard of those. Yeah. And then like people follow that model that it's like, oh, we're so funny. I love our games. Let's just put a mic in the middle Which of the room. Which is understandable. That's how you get sort of like two dudes talking podcasts or, you know, the sort of recorded improv podcast that we've come to love. Exactly. But I think the difference in the Adventure Zone and something that we try to emulate as well is, you know, we use this medium to recreate the magic that you feel when you're in a room playing D&D. So the Adventure Zone uses sound design. It uses music. It uses like strong editing, uh, character voices you know, stuff that really helps a listener who's not there at the table feeling the electricity of like, you know, improvising in the moment. It helps them to feel some of that as well. And we feel very strongly that, you know, if you're going to do D&D for audio, you should do D&D for audio and not just, you know, provide a like unedited stream of you and your friends around a table that like you might for streaming, for example. Yeah. And like, I think there's a lot of service that can be done to audiences that are just not getting the things that they don't see themselves in any of this stuff. And like, we want to make good audio. We, we listen to audio dramas. We are audio professionals. We, when we sat down to do this, we like made four tenets of like how we wanted to make our show better. Ooh, what are those four tenets, please? We wanted to make it as good audio as possible, as accessible as possible, as story focused as possible. And just like, as not gross as possible, just like not straight white male dude centric. And just like by doing all four of those things together, we could really push the game forward and make everyone come to the game and just like throw down a lot of barriers that keep people from listening to D&D podcasts. Yeah, we, it was very important to us that if you know nothing about D&D and if it's like a struggle for you to want to listen to an audio drama, uh, like you should still enjoy what we're doing. And it's sort of like, you know, we'll, will allow listeners to learn more about our game. We want to hold water for experienced D&D nerds as we like are aggressively opening our arms to people who have never played any kind of game. Sure. Uh, Amanda, I want to go back to what you were saying earlier about how gatekeepy the RPG 
community can be and how you didn't feel welcome in the hobby. Uh, and D&D itself has been making strides recently to make the game, at least in its written yeah. content, more gender inclusive. Uh, Join the party itself begins, the campaign begins with a gay wedding. I'm I'm curious how you are seeking to make the hobby more inclusive for people that have never played before or don't see themselves reflected in fantasy content that they would otherwise be consuming. Absolutely. Um, That has been like on our minds from day one. I think sort of the idea behind the podcast was like, it would be fun to do a D&D podcast. And then thought two was how are we going to make it like not straight, not white, not male, not, um, you know, really kind of hostile toward outsiders. I mean, from the very start, like that starts with audio quality, with editing, with, like I said earlier, you know, you don't have to know all the mechanics of the game in order to enjoy the story that we're putting in front of you. Um, the, The same sex wedding in episode one was a surprise to me, which I'm very excited about. Uh, as a as a queer person, like I knew that I was playing a queer character from the, the jump, even though I didn't reveal that in the story until like episode five or six. Like it kind of takes a while before it sort of came up in in the plot. But it was, I think, a great thing that Eric did as well to say from the beginning. You know, I said this over and over again in our pre production meetings, but it's not enough not just to like you know, refrain from actively turning off uh, queer people, women, people of color, et cetera. Like not making gross jokes is a good start, but that's also not enough to be truly accessible. You really need to say, how can I be accessible to the deaf and hard of hearing? How can I be accessible to people who, you know, are looking for versions of themselves in media? And the Adventure Zone over time has really, you know, taken on a life of its own and gained a cult following because they, again, initially did not actively turn away people who were not typical D&D audiences, but then they did go the extra mile of having characters of color, of having queer characters, you know, of doing kind of interesting stuff. But I mean, queer people show up for stuff, like even just putting one gay character in your show. It is such an exciting and novel thing to see characters like yourself treated with respect. Um, Even just to see a passing glimpse of a character who might be a lesbian, like queer internet is like, oh my God, watch the show. You know, it's just so exciting. And so for us trying to really go that extra mile and um, I don't know, just make those people part of the the heart and, and backbone of our story, like our biggest character that isn't a, a player character, our biggest NPC is, you know, married to a man um, and, and he's a man himself. And that I think, I don't know, other folks who don't experience that kind of alienation in pop culture, I think can't comprehend how exciting it is um, to see people like you playing people like you. And it's been a, a real priority of ours. Yeah, there's that there's a letter that one NPC, Greg, the husband of of Alonzo. Oh, oh my God, listening. I'm going to cry, David. David. I'm going to cry. And it was just this really beautiful, sweet letter that one NPC writes to another on the occasion of, you know, Alonzo embarking on a, on a great and dangerous journey. And it occurred to me, I'd never seen that in any kind of fantasy setting ever. Yeah. Like two men being in love and writing to each other really tenderly voiced by a gay man. Like uh, it's just, it's, it's really. He just hit me right in the bits. Eric as a straight dude doesn't have to do that. But I think especially for me, like even just being, having a woman in the room, like you just think a little bit more about the dick jokes that you're going to make. Having a queer person in the room, you know, you think a little bit more about the pronouns that you go to. Having a, you know, non-white person there makes you a little bit more conscious about the assumptions you make about races of your characters, you know? So it's, it's a real argument for diversity. Just have a person there, you know, like, 
like at, at minimum, even if you don't incorporate it into your content, just having someone there um, to kind of ask those questions or push back against a, a weird assumption or a weird joke, you know, is, is going to go miles. The goddamn lowest you can do is just have someone I know. In, the, in the room. I know. And like in episode one, at the end of that session, I was so excited to to have a gay wedding in front of me to, you know, defend, um, to defend those husbands. And I said to Eric, like, you better not kill your gays, you know, like, like you better not kill one of these husbands on their wedding day. Cause that's a trope in media, you know, that like you see a queer character only for them to like suffer a horrible fate. Mm. Um, I hope that you wouldn't have done that, but in any case we didn't do it. And, uh, we've had lots of people tweet us and say like, I'm so glad that, you know, our, our main NPCs husband did not die in episode two. Yeah. It, it like, it wasn't that hard. <laughs> like, I don't know what to say. And like our community, especially on our discord, like we have a discord that goes along with our Patreon. So I actually get a lot of time to talk to our fans in that way. And just like, I'm just happy that I can show them something that they didn't have before. But like, it wasn't that hard. <laughs> I still traffic in like a ton of other fantasy tropes. Like Alonzo is very much that sort of like rich, spoiled, uh, unaware royal prince sort of guy which is like such like a familiar trope and like yeah he has a husband like he got married really young and it's to a dude but like they also had like a very like big royal wedding that was like quasi religious and ridiculous and in the fucking like penthouse of a castle and it's just like i can still do the things that work in a fantasy story while still being accessible. I don't know. I just like every time I do something like this, it's just like, I don't need that credit because like, I didn't really do that much. I'm like, did you see this chase mechanic I came up with? Cause like that was tight. <laughs> but like the fact that I had a bunch of lesbians and queer people and I, some people have they pronouns. I'm just like, I'm, I'm, I'm really happy, but I didn't do much. Right. I want to get back to that chase mechanic in a hot minute, but there's also something that I've been thinking about related to D and D style fantasy over the past I guess decade, you know, there's there's these weird relics of like Victorian race science kind of embedded in what we now consider like Tolkien style high fantasy, right? That there are these distinct races. Which is everything that D&D has taken from. Right. Yeah, with, a lot of very problematic like phrenological, you know, uh, border zone race stuff uh, held up in fantasy. Right. That there's like evil and good as racial destiny, that wood elves are inherently good, and then dark elves are inherently bad. And I've noticed so far in Join the Party, the bad guys are halflings and centaurs from a specific political faction. Um, And these aren't like, quote unquote, traditional bad guys in that sense. Was this an intentional decision? Is there anything you're trying to say with that game design decision? Oh my God, David, you're my favorite. I swear (laughs) to God. Um, when I was coming up with the Red Throat Gang, which is what you were talking about, they're like this main anarchist group in Fidopolis, which is the first city we start in. It's like city on a hill sort of place. And I just like these people, especially what you get from Alonzo, but like the Kikos are like very high and mighty. Like imagine New England was like its own city state and Providence, literally the city was like the capital of New England. Yeah. And like the Kennedys of Fidopolis are who we're talking about. Yeah. And then they like, and then they, and then they marry like the Queens from Atlanta. Right. (laughs) Right. Which is really what it comes down to at this point. So yeah, I was thinking, I was like, there must be sort of like fantasy racially charged sort of thing. And I had this idea that halflings were the ones who were trying to rise up. I haven't like fleshed out the Red Throat Gang right now. They're just like kind of this anarchist group who's like against political monopolies. But I really thought that like, 
keeping everything on this racial line, especially in the way that you said that, like, the halflings are relatively neutral. Like, they're hobbits. Right. They're, they're halflings only for copyright reasons, right? Otherwise, they'd be hobbits. Exactly. <laughs> like, imagine, like, hobbits were trying to, like, stage a coup. Like, that's crazy. But it's just, like, you're just kind of warping all the fantasy stuff that you have together. Um, I don't know if it was necessarily intentional, but, like, a lot of the politics of the concentric states, which are these five city-states that are held together by a representative oligarchy. There is very intentional and put together. So we'll see. I think there's a lot of duplicity. And as my players know, like they don't trust anybody. No, everyone that Eric plays were like, okay, what's your agenda, buddy? (laughs) They're all like government people. They all like work in different types of government and like no one believes them. And they all like are just trying to defend their own stuff. I mean, it's fantasy West Wing. So we have to just cast with suspicion everyone until they become our best friend. But I mean, listen, like I, I hadn't put it together until now, but I love that our main villains are like politically motivated. It's so it's so boring to me when I read high fantasy and it's like, well, these groups are fighting because they're fighting and like they're mortal enemies and, you know, they can never be friends. Like I want to go one level deeper. You know, it's not interesting to me to have like an inherent, you know, rivalry between two groups just because Uh, these are like characters. They are more than their race. You know, they are more than their class or their occupation, which is the the word that we use in in D&D is class. And so of course our villains are going to have things in common other than their race. And I think that's partially because we assume a certain level of pop culture fluency in our audience. Like all of us grew up reading Harry Potter. All of us grew up reading, you know, whether it was like Chronicles of Narnia or, or, you know, Aragon or the Hobbit, you know, and Lord of the Rings or whatever these books are, we all kind of get it. And so this is not us recreating the kinds of tropes that we read, but it's us like putting that into the like churning machines of our minds, you know, that are now in 2017, 18, 19, et cetera, making a story of our own. Speaking of the churning machines of your minds, Eric, there have been a lot of instances of you tweaking game mechanics to achieve specific plot ends, like staging an episode of Chopped, but with potions crafting, or a foot race (laughs) through the streets of Vidopolis, or this super fast-paced combat where instead of taking turns, like would be normal in Dungeons & Dragons, all the player characters decide on their actions together as you set a timer for a minute. What, What motivates those decisions? Dungeons & Dragons originally came out of a war game that the guy who created Dungeons & Dragons, Gary Gygax, he was really into like... I don't even know what these are anymore. Like I've never played them. War games. War yeah. games. Like, like 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 in a World War II, you know, like smoky room with people in cigars and they have like miniatures on a table, you know, enacting battles. That yeah, kind of like thing. original sort of like not we're not even talking Warhammer. It's like you are making minis of cannons. Yeah. And stuff. And like the the initiative mechanic originally came from there, and which totally makes sense is like you do not make a move unless your enemy makes a move. As D&D has evolved, especially in 5th edition, which is what we're playing now, it's a lot more about role-playing. It's a lot more about, like, theater of the mind. Like, you don't have minis. A lot of people don't have minis. They don't have a table that they play on. It's a lot about, like, just thinking what kind of fight you're doing, what, what's something you can all imagine together. And on audio, which we're taking this a step further, is, like, you cannot have, it is impossible to have a physical representation of anything. So I've tried to figure out a way for initiative, which is the way that people fight in D&D, which is, like, people take turns. How would that work better for audio? And how can conflicts, just, like, two people who are against each other, two groups that are against each other, how can they be resolved? In a way that doesn't require Eric to know the outcome from the beginning. 
because it's one thing if in a book the hero goes against a, a villain and it's only one third of the way through the novel that you're holding in your hand and you're like, okay, well, they're going to lose somehow. And like, how is that going to work? But I think I mean, the, the challenge here is like we have to have a chance of winning and a chance of losing or like there have to be stakes. There, there has to be a way for something that isn't, you know, our opinions to influence the outcome here. Exactly. So like I, I've been trying to do a lot of contests, a lot of challenges. So Chopped, I had been watching so much Chopped lately. <laughs> How do I bring a food contest or like a potions contest? Because I love potions as like, especially as a Skyrim player. I love potions, but like there is no good potions mechanic. Like how do you do that in D&D? So I'm just like, oh, it's Chopped. So it's like, how do you make that contest together? There's a, a lot of stuff that I could pull from older versions and like from older games there's a chase mechanic, which I found on the internet. There is something called a challenge, which is like you set up your, not even like a fight, but like this really big like activity you're all doing together. And it's like you all need to make moves and then it's like events. It's kind of like waves, more like in a video game sort of way. You're like dealing with different waves of enemies. Our party tried to get across a massive lake on a boat. So like that was a, a challenge. But the thing that I'm really most proud of is what I call action movie fighting. Uh, I put one minute on a clock and I make Brandon, Fish, and Amanda have to figure out their plan in one minute. And then once it stops, they have to do it. And it just like it, it provides literally like a segment of time that listeners will be keyed in on table talk. So literally the players talking to each other. And then it's going to be like more fluid action that I will resolve. And then the enemies get to go. And like... Yeah, it, sometimes they win and sometimes they lose and maybe it, it skews more to them winning. But like, that's how an action movie goes. You need to see them beat up a whole bunch of people. Jason Bourne needs to like do five roundhouse kicks in a row and then eventually they resolve it and then you see what happens later in the movie. Yeah, like in an action movie, you don't see what would normally happen in D&D, which is like Black Widow fights an enemy and then, you know, Hawkeye gets to shoot the enemy and then Captain America gets to do something against the enemy and then the enemy goes. Like you don't you don't go serially in a vacuum. And so what I, as a new player, you know, really enjoy about that is that there isn't time for me to like go over my endless options. Uh, when I first started playing and like my like second game ever or third game ever was our first episode. Like I, I was very, very fresh and it's so overwhelming to look at, you know, your friends faces around a table that is empty and has like water glasses and beer on it and look down at your sheet. And there's just a bunch of like words you don't understand and a bunch of numbers and be like, well, Amanda, what do you do? I'm like, I don't know what I do. You tell me what I do. Like, what are my choices? You know? And so especially when we're in combat, you have like a dagger or you have an arrow, like there are a couple of things that you can do, but you can also like run away and look for something else or you can, you know, do something unexpected. It just was so over overwhelming to me. Um, so being able to say like, okay, we have exactly one minute me and my teammates are going to work together. I don't have to like, you know, waste a turn doing something dumb or like wonder if I could do something better. There's a finite amount of time. There's a finite, you know, number of things I can do. And like, it might not be the best one, but it's the one that I got to in 60 seconds. And so for me, like, I love when we are able to do that in the game, just because it makes me feel like I'm better equipped or on a more even footing with the more experienced players at the table. Yeah, I'm like stealing that one hot hundred percent. Oh, please take it. Because I, I've, I've never been more bored at a game table than when you get into like a great big fight and it just takes two hours and i'm like what's going on here what are we what are we doing everyone's on their phone and like i feel that way listening to it mm -hmm. like i feel that way when i'm dming for people it's like they need to wait and like they're thinking about their move and like yeah the whole expectation is that you're you're thinking about your thing as you're waiting for initiative but it's just like 
Like you got to put some sort of time limit on it. And I don't want that my audience members to do that either. Maybe we should play timed Scrabble. Maybe that make me like Scrabble better if I only had 60 seconds per turn. So there should be time. That would be better. That would be better. So I feel like you, you know, you make these decisions with the audience in mind, right? Because when you're, if, if the three of us were just playing Dungeons and Dragons, no microphones, we might play a little bit differently. We might still use some of your modifications to the rules, but do you feel that you have modified the game slightly because you are doing this narrative for performance? I want to say yes, but I also don't think that's a bad thing. I'm not saying it is. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's nothing wrong with doing something for Mike. Like we know we're being recorded, so we want to be thoughtful. But at the same, I think we do like a lot of takes, like we do a lot of takes of stuff we say, and maybe I say less dumb stuff. But at the same time, I say tons of dumb stuff that stays in the podcast. I came up with people's accents that are like half German and half Tyra Banks. (laughs) Uh And half Tommy Lusso, yeah. Uh, So it's like, I want to say both yes and no is like, I want to say we're more careful, but at the same time, it's like letting us loose is just the fun part of a Dungeons and Dragons podcast. I think we're as loose as we can be while understanding our context. So like we will still make dumb jokes just to make each other laugh, knowing that Brandon Grugel, our editor, will not allow the worst of those into the podcast. Like he will say that for the blooper reel that our patrons get. And, you know, the the magic of editing allows us again to be a, like heightened reality version of ourselves. Like you have a heightened reality version of a D&D session where it's only 45 or 50 minutes long, where all of our jokes are pretty funny. If I do say so myself, you know, and like all <laughs> of the the takes and the sentences make a kind of coherent sense without like gesticulating and like doing, you know, double takes and saying half sentences. It kind of it cuts to the feeling like like it cuts to the the message and the the point of what it is that we're doing. Did you just. Carly Rae Jepsen me. She does all oh, the time. Oh, I super did. Eric gave you a dirty look across the table as, as I said that. Okay, sorry, continue. But yeah, like we we know that we are amusing ourselves, but also the audience. And I, I just, I don't know. Like I, I don't think about the people that are going to hear this as we're playing. Like I'm really immersed in the universe. Like I, I embody my character and I make choices that she would make. And it really is escapist. Like I leave the session forgetting what happened. Like I have to take notes during my session to remember the next time we play the next week or two weeks later, what it is that we did because I'm just like, so in the moment as we do it. Um, but I, I also know that instead of, you know, describing how my character feels, I'm going to, say what she does you know like it's not interesting to me to hear a podcast about people thinking at themselves all day long or a player talking about how her character feels i'm gonna show it instead we've just kind of over time refined our style of play so that we do show more than we tell and we do allow each other to speak more than we might otherwise if we were just like so excited and wanted to like monologue the entire session yeah so i'm thinking about something you said in the context of the action movie style combat where there's there's kind of an expectation that the player characters are going to win, that they're going to succeed, Jason Bourne style. It seems like there has been a change in the hobby over the past, call it 25 years, along with it becoming more inclusive that makes Dungeons & Dragons less of a dungeon master versus player characters game. You know, it's not like you're aiming for total party kills, which I think is maybe what the attraction would have been for someone who grew up playing D&D maybe 15 to 20 years before we started it. 
I don't know. I'm just not interested in like making my friends mad. I'm not interested in being antagonistic. The world is hard, you know, and, and like we have enough beating us down every day and to come together like we want to accomplish stuff together as a group, not be beaten down by, you know, our our friend and then let the DM feel superior for having like bested his friends. Um, I think it's that experience of like mutual accomplishment and discovering a story together and not like you know, beating each other. We're all theater kids also. So that might be part of it is like our, our idea, like there might be rivalry along the way of who's doing it better. But at the end of the day, like you're all there to accomplish a thing together and not to like beat an enemy. Maybe if we'd all play sports, it would be a slightly different story. I have played sports and competition is very good. I have also played sports. We've all (laughs) also done musicals and plays and that I think gets into your blood. Hmm. And also, like, that would be a super boring podcast if everyone just died immediately in episode two. <laughs> yeah, we know at least that our characters are probably going to live. Right. I know. That's the only <laughs> thing I could say. It was like, you guys kind of have plot armor, but, like, not exactly. Your lives can be terrible and not be dead. I know. Amanda, you said in a roundtable interview that all four of you did on electric literature that you worked in the theater and you found it a little boring that you couldn't find new meaning in the same lines night after night of a performance. Tell me about places you find meaning in role-playing games. Oh, oh wow, get David. Em. Yeah, good, good good, question. Yeah, Amanda, what is that? Just going at my heart with a shovel here, aren't we? Oh, we're um, 40 minutes so, in, babe. So, like, I'm going <laughs> for it. <laughs> this is the third act, man. We're there. Get them. Um, yeah, so the context of that, of that comment was that like I was saying earlier, you know, improv can be really overwhelming and that there's like unlimited possibility. But I also feel really constrained by by medium where I know everything is going to be happening. For example, as a person running lighting and sound for musicals or plays, the other actors on stage, like they would experience this thing that they talked about where every night they would say the exact same line. Everybody memorized the script. Everybody knew it was coming next. But in order to give a truthful performance, they had to like discover in their hearts new meaning every night or like embody the character enough that they felt as if they were experiencing these lines that they memorized months ago for the first time. And I was never able to do that. And like the second time that I ran lights for the same musical, even if I loved it, I'd be like, okay, God, all right, like, let's just get through it. Like, I know that the act is coming. Like we know how this is going to resolve. Let's just like get, get to it. But in role-playing, it is really exciting to me not to know what my character is going to do next, but to know that I'm going to be forced to do something. It is a really good, kind of middle path in between a script where everything is foretold and writing a novel, which I've done lots of times where it's you and a blank page or a blank word processor. And there is nothing compelling you forward. Like you might have a story within you, but I've always been so much better at world building than I've been at plot. And so to me, like I never studied writing with any real intensity because I can't bear to make my character suffer. Like I can't bear to derail my plot from the point that I know it's going to go. And so in role playing, I have the certainty of knowing my character, of knowing what kinds of decisions she would make, of knowing my colleagues in my party. There's some kind of constraint on the stuff I can do. I can't say like I fly away, you know, like, like there, there are some limits to what I can do, but I know that someone else in the room that Eric as the DM is going to give us situations where we're forced to, to do stuff. And so it's just, I don't know. It's just like a a perfect middle ground. Tight. Nice. (laughs) Oh man. I, I am really glad that I'm not writing a novel because I don't want to be responsible for so many of my characters actions. Like if, if they do stuff, it's my fault. 
But I feel like there is this like conversation, this dialogue, this exchange between me as like the environment and them as the characters. And like they bounce off of everything that I've created. It's like um, I've made like an obstacle course and I'm seeing if people can accomplish it. And it's not even necessarily like DM versus players. It's like you made a basketball court or you've made like a field and you want to see what people do in it. Like an arts and crafts table or like a makerspace, you know, yeah. like like you get there and you're like, look at all this cool stuff I put together. Are they going to assemble it in the way that I think they will? Are they going to make something totally new? Are they going to flip the table and break it and then leave it to me to try to put stuff back together? You know, Please it's, don't it's, do that. Don't flip my table. No, I, I'm trying not to. I try not to. But like, I don't know, like as you're saying that, you know, I have much younger siblings. And so growing up with like babies and toddlers in the house, just like watching them take in the same inputs as you and come out with something totally wild, like the questions that toddlers ask are amazing and like the stuff that kids say when they're watching cartoons is like, are we even in the same universe? Like how, how did my brain evolve from a brain like yours to the brain like mine? And it's just, it's so amazing and surprising to see people be so like creative with the same stuff that you're, you're experiencing. And that's, that's how I feel when we're at the table as well. When either the other players do something surprising or the plot turns in a way that I'm not conditioned to expect with all the like hero's journey, you know, stories that I've consumed over the years, it's getting to watch your friends be inventive and surprising and generous and, and like true to their characters and it's just like the, the coolest feeling in the world. And it's so much more interesting than someone like exploiting a logical loophole or killing all of us because he can. But like, I want you to exploit my loopholes. Like, I want to see what cracks I have and then have to adapt accordingly. Yeah. Like if there's a way to like find an older lady to flirt with in a scene, I'm going to do it. Even when I don't remember, I did it. And like Amanda's <laughs> like, oh, how old is she? Is it a woman? All right. Anara flirts with her. <laughs> yeah. Or like the, the like worst and most moral assassin of all time. Or like everything that Brandon does is is like something that I never would have thought to do. Or Michael thinking four steps ahead, you know, as a super experienced player and and kind of just really subtly like setting us up for success it's just I don't know, it's just the best thing it's kind of interesting as like your players your the characters are archetypes but you three as players also fit into archetypes yeah. it's like we have six different tropes happening at the same time <laughs> which is crazy it's just like a very deep fantasy world that i get to i get to inhabit and walk around and now like i'm starting to know like your pitfalls and like things you all fall for it's very fun i'm this ne- this arc we're working on right now is just going to be bananas. I'm so excited about it. <laughs> it's great. We've pulled so much from audio dramas and from the Adventure Zone. I mean, it's like we get to gl- we're like the second generation of yeah. We're a firmly post Adventure Zone podcast. Exactly. And now they're starting a new project and like seeing what they're doing and um, like Friends at the Table is also like digging a similar arc uh, where it's like a lot more game prescriptive like they use a lot of role-playing game systems that it's not Dungeons and Dragons but it's like seeing what role-playing games can do how big can you make your story how much hacking can you put together to create something wonderful how does form follow function we're pulling from all these things at the same time and try to create this concoction that uh, people will love but at the same time that really means that we are like it's hard to find an audience for that because like we love all this stuff and we listen to it obsessively. But when we're, you know, looking for new listeners for the show, 
to a certain extent, you have to be like, okay, well, there there's Dungeons and Dragons and there are D&D role-playing podcasts and there are D&D real play podcasts. And like, it's great, but it could be better. And here is how, you know, or like, yes, it's audio drama. Wait, it's not fiction. Wait, it is fictional. Hold on, it's improvised. And like, there's just, there's so many kind of layers that we're putting into play. And, um, and a, a lot of our mission is again, to like rope new people into spaces that they don't yet know that they're going to love. Uh, so we have been so fortunate to like reach a wonderful, passionate, thoughtful, challenging audience and the thing that we keep saying is like you're gonna have to teach a person that you love how to listen to podcasts or teach people who listen to podcasts that they're going to love the show you know in order to to really reach them i mean we could always ask the question like what is an audio drama yeah like are we an audio drama? Misha Stanton keeps telling me that we're an audio drama. Listen, if Misha says so, that's all that's all the, the the thumbs up that I need. But I mean, it's not a label that we wanted to assume that we can take because like we don't put years into writing scripts. Eric puts years, uh, you know, it seems into preparation, but we don't come to the table with like lines. So I don't know, for, for us, it was sort of, we're like a hybrid creature and it's taken us some time to kind of decide on on labels for ourselves. I wouldn't call... Welcome to the Magic Tavern of audio drama, but like it's everything people say is canon. They're dealing with fiction. They're dealing with tropes. I think we're trying to push on what fiction podcasts are. Yeah, that's why when when I took over the show, I kind of changed our slogan from audio drama and radio drama to audio fiction because I think that there's room for a much broader and more expansive definition than what we'd previously been using. If you don't want to be audio drama, that's fine. If that means something very specific to you, great. But I, I don't know. I think I think that there's something very interesting and very powerful in using this medium to tell stories about stuff that isn't isn't real, but approaches the truth of real things. And like, we want to hold ourselves up to that standard as well in the same way that, you know, you can choose what category to submit your film for awards, you know, and, and you can kind of be creative about how you describe yourself. At least speaking for myself, like I... I don't know any podcasters that are more serious and committed and, and, you know, hold themselves to high standards than audio drama producers. And some of the critiques that people like Will Williams write about audio dramas are like the smartest critiques being written about audio today, period. And like, I, I want to make a show that can stand up to that kind of tradition and rigor. So, you know, for, for me, and I know for Brandon as well, who scores and, and edits and sound designs the show, you know, we, we want to sound better than almost anything that anyone who listens to us listens to. And so that's a label that, you know, we, I think, try to live up to if we haven't necessarily earned it right out the gate through our premise. What do you think D&D has to teach writers what have you learned about story from this collaborative system? I think Dungeons and Dragons does the same thing that improv comedy does. It puts constraints on imagination and then therefore lets imagination run wild. Yeah, and I'll definitely echo that. Having rules really makes you focus on like, what though am I saying? And I'm someone who really enjoys language. I really enjoy storytelling for its own sake. And so having to think about like, what am I accomplishing? What am I saying? What am I doing? Who is my character? What is my purpose? That's stuff that doesn't come naturally to me. And so playing a game where that's all I've got and like the world isn't up to me. But at the end of the day, like if I can justify something in the story, like Eric will find a way to let me do it. And that has been like a really wonderful challenge to like inhabit characters and think about motivation and do all that kind of stuff a lot better than I think I would have on my own. 
Can I, can, uh, I would love to just like stand on a soapbox for a second and talk about like challenging other podcasters to do better. Can can I do that? Soapbox away. Go ahead. I'm excited to see what happens. I never thought of myself as someone that could produce a story like this, but once we decided to, it's been really thrilling and I would love for other folks who make podcasts, who make audio in some way to think about like, how can you make things more interactive? How can you make things more accessible? How can you design your show from the get-go? Like what kinds of pre-production can you do to make sure that you're not reaching, you know, the same people that listen to the same podcasts and have the same hobbies that you do. Like the coolest stuff out there right now is crossover. It's, you know, applying one sort of media to another. It's applying one kind of story to a different form. It's, you know, throwing mechanics from one thing on top of another. It's bringing Chopped into a Dungeons and Dragons game. Like that kind of stuff is delightful. It is popular. It makes people excited. It's like cool when friends tell their friends about it. Um, And I just, I want more cool crossover stuff. I want more queer media. I want more podcasts with transcripts. You know what I mean? And like just designing at this point, we have so many great podcasts out there. If it's a good podcast, like that is not enough. And so to think about how you can like structurally and formally design for creativity and push the medium further and bring new people into audio, like that is going to benefit all of us. And I am just so excited to see what this whole like post adventure zone generation of game folks enjoy and create. And I want I just want more. I want more. Help me out. Make more stuff. Eric, do you have a soapbox? A related box of soap? Sure. Um, The real way that this podcast came together was because uh, Brandon Fitch and I all worked together, and then we got drunk at a holiday happy hour, and we're like, we should just make a and d podcast. And then we tried to figure out the best way to do it. Amanda's not wrong. The pre-pro that we did on this show is unreal we put so much time and effort into figuring out what this show is going to be about like i talk about these four tenants of mediocre DD podcasts all the time because it's just like we want to do better and i think that a lot of people have been scared to make a podcast um because of like financial constraints and like th- these ideas of where time goes like about editing and about mixing and about like just like the scariness of equipment, but it's like if you put your time into the things that you want to do, if you're thinking about innovating, if you're thinking about what your audience is, if you're thinking about like putting your time to actually editing and not just like thinking about editing or like how hard editing could be, <laughs> you can really make something amazing. There's no reason to be scared. It's like there is a very low bar to get into podcasting, but there is a very high bar to do something new right now. And like, just reach it. Just go. Don't be scared. It's just like, you're going to have to work and that's fine. Kick ass. Well, thank you for letting me join your party. Hey, there it is. That's what we're here for, David. Anytime. Title drop. Yes. You two are welcome back on Radio Drama Revival anytime. Aw, thanks, David. Thanks, David. Thanks, y'all. What are some ways in which Radio Drama Revival could be more accessible? Do you want to help me prepare transcripts of interviews so we can be more accessible to people with hearing disabilities? How can this show do a better job of making itself accessible outside of the demographic slice it already reaches? How can we get to people that love podcasts but don't know that there's such a thing as audio fiction? Hit me up with your ideas. We're at Radio Drama on Twitter. And now it's time for some credits. 
Let me dig out the old monster manual here. Our theme music is Danger Did You Do by DJ Stranger Danger. You can find his music on SoundCloud. Our line producer is Matthew Boudreau. Mountain, Bestial, Challenge Rating 10, plus 5 to a claw attack that does 2d12 damage, Ironhide, and Magic Resistance. Our interview's producer is Eli McElveen. Forest, Elemental, Challenge Rating 10, Supernatural Abilities, Thorn Bramble, Earthen Fist. Heather Cohen and Monique Boudreau are our researchers. Heather, Ocean, Warforged, Challenge Rating 10, Supernatural Abilities, Glittering Wave, Seaweed Lash, Sequel, Ruby, Monique, Forest, Bestial, Challenge Rating 10, Abilities, Speak to Trees, Mighty Cleave, Bark Skin. Our executive producer is Fred Greenhouse, Abyssal, Massive, Demonic, Challenge Rating 900, Supernatural Abilities, Lame Whip, Phantasmal Terror, Raise Dead, Start Podcast. I'm your host, David Reinstrom. Two Wisdom, Five Dexterity, 18 Charisma, Wink, and this has been Radio Drama Revival. All storytellers welcome. Dungeons and dragons and dragons in dungeons. What's the dragon doing in a dungeon if it's got wings? Think about that. How they get it? Does it, they bring it in as a baby? They bring in the baby egg dragon, and it comes out, and it's like, I'm a tiny dragon, and then, and then it's too big to get out of the dragon out of the dungeon once it gets like big and fat on adventurers. Just you know, these are these are the thoughts. Try the veal. The all-new Toyota RAV4 asks, what if, what if your ride was refined and rugged at the same time? Introducing the all-new RAV4 Hybrid. 208 combined horsepower and standard all-wheel drive make it the most powerful RAV4. Plus, with its head-turning style and breakaway speed, it's bound to change the way you think of a hybrid. The all-new RAV4 Hybrid. Toyota. Let's go places. Horsepower. Ratings achieved using the required premium and gasoline with an octane rating of 91 or higher. Premium fuel is not used. Performance will decrease. The all-new Toyota RAV4 asks, what if? What if your ride was refined and rugged at the same time? Introducing the all-new RAV4 Hybrid. 208 combined horsepower and standard all-wheel drive make it the most powerful RAV4. Plus, with its head-turning style and breakaway speed, it's bound to change the way you think of a hybrid. The all-new RAV4 Hybrid. Toyota. Let's go places. Horsepower. Ratings achieved using the required premium and gasoline with an octane rating of 91 or higher. Premium fuel is not used. Performance will decrease.